Good evening, everyone. Good evening, everyone. I'm glad you're here. I wondered for just a moment. Our text for tonight's sermon is um, 1 Timothy chapter 4. First verse, you can find that on page 1178 in your Pew Bible. Last week, Pastor Williams preached on the closing verses of chapter 3 and on the value of godliness in the life of the believer. That's important to understand in context here as we're working our way through the pastoral epistles that Paul is writing here to Timothy as a leader in the church. He's writing to leaders in the church. And so as we asked several weeks ago, you might be wondering, well, what does this have to do with me? Well, it has everything to do with you if you're not a leader in the church, because you're a leader somewhere, number one, and you're here in this congregation. You're part of this community, part of this fellowship. And so what Paul says to Timothy tonight is very important to you and to me as members of this church, as believers in this community, because Paul is not only telling Timothy what to look for, what to watch out for, but he's telling us that as well. I want you to be conscious of these things. I want you to live like this, as this way. And tonight he has a particular uh, difficult, maybe in some context, word for Timothy and for us because he's going to talk about heresy. He's going to talk about apostasy. He's going to talk about um, those who are teaching and leading in the church who may be teaching and leading people in the wrong direction. And, um, and it's a very important message for us. It was important in Paul's day and in Timothy's day. It's certainly important today. As I mentioned, Pastor Williams preached on this particular text. He encouraged the church, Paul did, to say, I write these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So what is the church? Well, Paul tells us it is the household of God. The church is you and me. The church is not this building, it is us, the very people of God, the people for whom Christ died. And it is the people that are the pillar and the buttress, the foundation of the truth. We are to live out that truth in our daily lives. Now the false teachers are denying what the church is actually confessing, namely that... um, Great indeed, we confess the mystery of godliness, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 16. He was manifested in the flesh, speaking of Jesus, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And now he's going to turn his attention to men who are undermining that very confession of who Christ is. And so it's important for us to hear... For that reason, Paul is preparing Timothy for a tough season in ministry for two reasons. Some are going to abandon the faith, and some will devote themselves to ungodly demonic teaching. As one writer 
concludes, Paul and Timothy inhabit that same wicked generation as does all the church prior to Christ's return. So that means to us as well here tonight. People may show some gospel reception, but ungodly conviction and practices may easily come roaring back. The demonic powers, though defeated on the cross, remain still at work. And so it's a sobering message to us from Paul tonight. Many of you have seen the Jesus Revolution documenting this movement of God through Calvary Chapel and Chuck Smith, a part of Julie's and my own journey of faith, uh, includes this movement out of Southern California. It was a unique crystallizing personality that was a part of this Jesus revolution or this Jesus movement named Lonnie Frisbee. And Lonnie was used by God in the lives of thousands and thousands of people. Many, many thousands came to faith as a result of Lonnie Frisbee's ministry. However, Lonnie also had a penchant for theatrics. Uh, He probably misunderstood and misrepresented some of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. And he eventually left his wife and left the faith. Fortunately, uh, Lonnie, years later, came back to the faith, finished strong until he died in the mid-90s. The reason I give you that example, even before we read the text tonight, is just to highlight that there are those whose message seems to be on center, but oftentimes can go awry. And Paul is holding that up to us tonight and saying, We need to have the right ability to hear and to know whether what we're hearing is actually from God himself, from his word, or is it just some fanciful action of some people in the church, maybe for the best of reasons, but leading us in paths that the scriptures do not lead us and asking of us things that the scriptures do not ask of us and causing us to behave in ways that the Scripture do not ask us. So let's open our hearts and minds now to the reading of God's Word here in 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Father, would you take these words Uh, from this imperfect servant of yours tonight and speak truth through them. Illuminate our hearts and our minds tonight to know what is the truth, what is that you require of us as believers and followers of your son Jesus, that we might with joy run the race that is set before us and not easily uh, be taught by those who would drift from the truth and also would cause us to do the same. Lord, strengthen us, we pray, 
in our inner being tonight, we ask and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So three things I want to talk about tonight in these five verses. Number one, the source of the danger, the prohibition of the danger, and the failure of the danger. So first, let's talk about the source of the danger in verses one and two. Now, Paul says, the Spirit expressly says in the latter times that some are going to depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, that's a mouthful. When he says latter times, he doesn't mean the times right before Christ will come. What he means actually in this context is all of the time between when Christ ascended and when he will return, his second coming. All of that time. We are in that space now. So was Paul and so was Timothy. And until Christ returns, all of those believers who live in those errors will be a part of these latter times. He says, number one, that there is a falling away or a departing or an apostatizing. And it's evident in two ways. He says, number one, they follow deceiving spirits. These false teachers have aligned or devoted themselves to unholy spirits. Now, Paul doesn't go into great deal about where these unholy spirits come from. But obviously, he is saying that these false teachers are receiving some information, some bad information, some unholy information, and using that to teach in the church. Paul describes them in Ephesians 6. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Take up, therefore, the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So he's telling us in Ephesians that there are, there are these evil powers that, are, that exist in our world, and they influence all of us on some level. And he is warning us about that. Not only that, there are the teachings of demons. He says the origin or the source of the teaching over and against the sound doctrine that he's been talking about in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, this Paul describes so often in Timothy and Titus. Bad theology comes through these deceitful spirits and these teachings of demons. Now, we shouldn't look for a demon under every rock, nor should we blame everything that we do wrong on demons. But, having said that, there are Satan, there is Satan and his minions, and even though they've been defeated, their presence continues and will continue until Jesus returns. Their power has been defeated on the cross. We're going to celebrate that tonight at this table. But they're still present in the world, and they will remain present in this world, and they will have an effect on us until Christ returns. The source of the teaching is demonic, number one, and it's spread through these liars or these human minions in their current condition. And it involves both of these. 
These false teachers or liars, as Paul called them, are called hypocrites. If you look at the original word here in the Greek, it means a hypocrite. It's from Greek literature, and it means that you're playing a part. You're not playing something real. You're playing a part and intimating something that might be real but is not real. And hypocrisy is why Paul calls it deceptive, because you're living something that's not true, and that's deception. They know how to play the part. As one commentator says, false teachers often play the part of Christians pretending to be followers of Jesus Christ. They call themselves Christians. They seem to be committed and secure. They're thoroughly convinced of their orthodoxy. They go to church. They may even preach from the pulpit. Heresy always wears the mask of Christianity. That's a frightening thought to me. But that is the actual truth. And in some cases, I think the deception is not even intentional. Sometimes the deception is unintentional. We drift. And when we drift because of the desires of our heart and the flesh, we actually begin to believe things that aren't true about the Scriptures and about our Lord and what He calls us to do. They are not who they claim to be, these false teachers, whether intentional or unintentional, and that's why Paul calls it deception. Church history is full of examples of deliberate or well-meaning proponents of bad theology. You remember the early councils of the church. Uh, Nicaea was the very first one, which was combating Arianism, that Christ was not divine, that he was only created. He wasn't fully God and fully man. He was just created. Orthodox teaching on Mary that she as a human being could indeed have sinned but chose not to. Or in our recent past, biblical scholars who have undermined the inerrancy of the Bible. More recently, when I was in seminary, although it's not that recent anymore, John A.T. Robinson's book, Honest to God. Or today's slide from biblical values on sexuality pronouns, marriage, works, and countless other ways. Even our own denomination has confessed its complicity in racism and social injustice. This is why Paul and Timothy were in the last days, and so were we. This is the deception. But there's also a seared conscience that Paul talks about. He speaks earlier of a good conscience in chapter 1. He says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. If a good conscience leads to good behavior, then what does a seared conscience lead to? Well, it leads to bad behavior or unholy or ungodly behavior. The word seared comes from a root that also means to cauterize. I can remember I had surgery a few years ago and 
I had to have a, a, a piece of what they were doing on me cauterized in order for it to heal properly in the future. But at that point, I was insensitive to anything that was going on. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to say here. These teachers become insensitive to what they're teaching, insensitive to what they're thinking. They may even believe, they probably do in many cases, believe that they're right, that they're orthodox, that this is what God says when it's not. But when you have a seared conscience, that's what happens. They lost all sensitivity. Paul says in Ephesians 4, they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's the kind of life Paul wants his believers to have. Well, what are the elements? What's the result of this danger? We know the source now. What is the results of that? There are two pieces of this bad theology. Number one, there is the fact that these false teachers forbid marriage. Secondly, they require abstinence from foods that God created. So it says in verse 3, these false teachers who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So these false leaders are misreading the law of God in prohibiting marriage and their dietary restrictions. Speaking of dietary restrictions, I'm reminded of our grandson who some years ago when he was a, a young, young boy, uh, he was traveling with Julie on their way from Charleston to Augusta and they're riding down the highway and he says in the most serious tone, Mungi, which is what our grandchildren call Julie. Mungi, have you heard the news? Well, she couldn't wait to hear what the news was. No, Talmadge, what is it? I no longer eat vegetables. <laughs> yep, that's the big news, he said. So... I'll let Julie tell you how she responded to that. That he had some dietary restrictions, I, I imagine a little bit different than what we're talking about here in 1 Timothy. But so it was with the false teachers as well. What do these practices, forbidding marriage and abstaining from food, suggest about these false teachers? Well, one thing you notice about the false teachers is they're, they're mostly negative. It's mostly about what they're against, not typically what they're for. That's one sign to always look for in a false teacher. Seems these items, sexual relations in marriage and rules on food, were commonplace and part of the lively debates within these new young churches, these house churches. And they attempted to figure out what life together involved when different cultures intermingled. 
And so Paul even has this discussion with Peter. He opposes Peter and he says in Galatians 2, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he threw back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And so Paul goes right after um, this fear that Peter had of uh, disappointing these, this group of the circumcision and undermining so much of what was happening with the gospel as it was spreading in those early years of the church. They were trying to figure it out, this new life and how things like food restrictions and marriage were linked to the ongoing usefulness of the law. They were trying to understand what it meant to live together in community, particularly when they were coming from different cultures. They were common in the churches and in Paul's ministry. Well, why these two? Why forbidding marriage and abstaining from certain foods and not others? Well, it's unclear from the text, but maybe something arose in the church that necessarily linked the two of those together. We're not certain, but it's possible. It may be even Paul's allusion to the Genesis creation story where he feels like these false teachers are misappropriating what God intended in those early chapters in Genesis as a way to have control or to have power over others. What is clear is that these false teachers were misappropriating and manipulating the Old Testament and the issues in Genesis' account of creation, which was abstaining from foods and not marrying with godliness or piety. So what they were trying to do was saying somehow, if you married... And if you did not abstain from these foods, then you were not exhibiting the kind of godliness and piety that was required. That was not what the scripture said at all. It almost seems as though these false teachers were going back before pre-fall, if you will. Because pre-fall, there was no marriage. And it's not until chapter 9 that God begins to talk about eating meat. And so it's possible that these false teachers were going back to that, reinterpreting that in a way that God never intended it to be interpreted. What is clear is that they were misunderstanding and misappropriating the Old Testament. Paul is communicating to Timothy that these false teachers are misapplying these gifts that God gave using a heretical understanding of creation. Now, here's his response. His response is, look, God is the creator. He's the creator of all of this. He created food. He created marriage. In other words, marriage, which he's all, Paul has already affirmed in 1 Timothy in chapter 2 and in, in chapter 3, and foods are a gracious gift from this creator God And the response from Christians ought to be, Paul says, thanksgiving, gratitude, 
Don't call something unclean that God has called clean, Paul will say in another place. Undermining the false teaching and the failure of this danger, we see in verses 4 and 5, where Paul says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So how do we neutralize that threat? How do we neutralize that bad theology? Well, Paul's answer is, look in Genesis and read what Genesis actually says. God creates these things for his people and for his own glory. And then he says, it is good. It's good. It's really good. And I want you, as my people, to enjoy those things. The idea of certain food restrictions was a big issue in the early church. You had non-Jewish people joining the community with their customs, and it was creating some confusion in the body. And that's one of the reasons that Paul is dealing with that here. But some were taking just those natural um, aspects of building a new community together and exploiting them for personal gain, perhaps, but at a minimum, just out of a bad sense of theology of what God had created those gifts for. There's nothing wrong, there's nothing inappropriate in being single. There's nothing wrong, there's nothing um, unimportant, there's nothing inappropriate about being a vegetarian. The difficulty comes when you and I make either of these or any other similar matter essential to the gospel. That's when it becomes problematic. That's what these false teachers were doing. When this happens, we've created a special group of Christians or a superior spirituality. And Paul cannot stand that because it is so antithetical to the gospel. There's nothing wrong with self-denial if it doesn't become self-righteous, as one writer has said, I uh, personally enjoy intermittent fasting. And I believe that it's helpful to my body if it's done correctly, and it can be beneficial. However, the moment that I say to you, well, people who really care about their body as a temple of the Holy Spirit will do intermittent fasting. Well, I have stepped over a line at that point. And I have placed a burden on you that the Scripture never places on you. And that's what these false teachers were doing. When I do that, I have jumped in the deep end of the self-righteous pool. And it's deadly. Marriage, and in this context, sex and food are gifts from God and are ours to be enjoyed with gratitude from the giver. In other words, we're free in Christ to make use of all foods, acknowledging them as a gift and receiving them with gratitude. And this gratitude takes shape in two ways at the end of this passage. Number one, prayer. The community acknowledges this gift from God and gives thanks for it and blesses God for it. 
And so we act on it and are convinced that as Paul says in Romans 14, nothing is unclean in itself. So we rejoice in what God's done. And when we pray, we give thanks for that and rejoice in it. Secondly, the Word of God. Paul can, he's not clear here, he can be referring to the gospel message or specifically to Genesis chapter 1 or in earlier sections of Genesis. It's hard to tell for sure, but you never can go wrong. As Paul says over and over again, when you take your cues from the Word of God, and the Word of God you learn in this context here, you learn it in your small groups, Bible studies, you learn it in your personal devotional time. You learn it when you see what God has done in creation and what he gives you in his gifts. All of that is a part of God's word to you and to me. So what are the lessons from Paul to Timothy and for us? He is certainly countering these false teachers and their belief that these practices were linked to God's work in creation. He's attacking that and saying that is not true. You are misreading what God has said in those passages. First of all, he says God's designed that we should be fruitful and multiply in marriage. He says that in Genesis and it's reiterated again in the New Testament. Live where we are by and in faith and not speculate about the future. Have the freedom given to all believers in Christ to eat all foods because God has created them. You live this life together with thanksgiving, depending on God's word and praying. So how then shall we live? Well, we shall live in a way that honors God and the gifts that he's given us. But I love this quote from commentator Towner. It says, though at times we might wish for it, this life is not a fairy tale. And that sort of ending must be left until the end. There it is fitting, but now it is a matter of hope. The biblical picture of the Christian life in this present age, confirmed by the long span of church history, is one of struggle and steady opposition. It is not that there is no joy and peace for the Christian, but that until Christ returns, joy and peace are found with the believer and within Christian fellowship often in stark contrast to the actual circumstances of life. What he's saying there to us is, there's going to be lots of ways to follow lots of unholy teaching. We need to be grounded. And when you're grounded, you have hope and trust and faith in the one true God. And when you have faith and hope and trust in the one true God, then you will follow him. And no matter the circumstances that you and I find ourselves in, no matter the opposition that we may find, or even in our joy, we will find a settledness in our relationship to the Father and to the Son, guided and led and powered by the Holy Spirit in our life. Sometimes we expect this life to be too easy. And it just isn't until Jesus returns. And in the meantime, he's given us one another. He's given us his word. He's given us these sacraments to encourage us, to strengthen us, and to uh, encourage us to press on in this life. Let's do that together.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gift of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for these hard texts that at times we read, that sometimes are difficult for us to understand, sometimes difficult for us to hear. But we thank you, Lord, that you have given us wise counsel uh, in your word, but you've given us wise counsel in our leaderships. Protect our leadership and protect all of us, Lord, that we might uh, understand and know what your word says and what our, life, our lives should be so that we can follow it and so that we will know when we hear things that are not consistent with your word. Thank you for the freedom that you give us in Christ. Thank you for the freedom that you give us in your word. You want us to enjoy and express that freedom in our lives. Thank you for doing that. Continue to show us the way in that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.